Welcome to Up and Smoke, the podcast where you can get all of your smoking hot news. Listeners, welcome to this week's episode of Up and Smoke for all your smoke-related news. My name is Jeffrey Ferris, and with me today is... Jeff Mellon. I'm a PhD in chemistry. I'm going to talk a little bit about vaping. Vaping has been in the news today. There's apparently been a lot of recent concern over several vape-related deaths or vaping-related deaths where lung disease has been attributed to a person smoking a vape. Yes, uh, there's a number of examples of that. Most recently, and it's still being evaluated, vaping of THC products have been linked to a number of deaths across the country. There's been a number of warnings that have suggested, please do not mix these two, uh, at least until there's a better understanding of uh, what the mode of action is, what's, what's causing these deaths. But also, some, there's some other famous examples. So, for example, popcorn lung that's associated with butter flavor vape. A number of people say that vaping is safe. It's just water vapor. And more and more evidence is showing that that is just absolutely not true. That defense seems odd to me because as far as I understand, like most of these vapes have various different flavors to them. It's hard to imagine being able to introduce those flavors without some sort of chemical component. You're absolutely right. Often people say, some people say that, well, vape juice is only four ingredients. It's water, it's nicotine, it's vegetable glycerin, it's propylene glycol and some flavor. Well, there's a number of issues with that statement. Number one, the purity of these compounds varies all over the map. So there may be all kinds of impurities associated with each of the components that are mixed in there. And since often, especially individuals or groups that are rolling their own vape juice, as it were, they are sourcing these materials from any number of places. And so the the purity is in question. But also, one of those ingredients is called flavor. And a flavor could be a single compound, or it could be 50 or even 100 compounds. It just very much depends on the source and the nature of the flavor itself. So there's a huge complexity in the vape juice that is being smoked. And then on top of that, what happens in an ENDS unit, N stands for Electronic Nicotine Delivery System, ENDS. So basically your vape pen or your whatever, when you smoke it, you're combusting that liquid. And it's getting turned into all kinds of other things that it wasn't initially, including things like formaldehyde or polymeric materials, pyrolysis compounds, and any number of things. And it turns out that is dependent on the temperature, the wattage, the nature of the heating element that's inside the ENDS unit. Of course, the impurities, all of these things generate huge varieties of profiles that are then being inhaled. So there's a huge complexity that affects, you know, individuals differently, even if you could generate the same combination of chemicals that a person is inhaling. Now, I imagine that an increased difficulty in trying to determine the actual effects of vaping is the sort of do-it-yourself aspect of the vaping community. A lot of people assemble their own units, and as you said, roll their own juice. They're going to be vaping in their vape unit. So I imagine that increases the difficulty of trying to determine the actual effects of vaping. Yes. Reproducibility in general, getting the dosing right is a major, major complication. Not to mention that there are thousands of flavors that are being generated every month, being distributed. It's 
hornet's nest of, of complications, and it is a, a major point of concern in assessing the safety of these of these materials. So, according to news releases that have come out today, there's probably going to be a ban on on flavored vape liquids, stuff like mango or strawberry and stuff like that. Do you think this is a a good like first step in like at least trying to limit the sale of these units until we get a better understanding of what's going on? Well, first, the FDA is not banning vape juice. What they are doing is they are saying that in order to market something across state lines, you have to do what's called a pre-market tobacco application. You have to demonstrate safety, the toxicity profiles, use profiles, you know, the addictive profile, how it compares to, say, other products in a similar class or tobacco products in general. There's a, it's a huge package of information. And what they're saying is not that they are banning vape juice or flavored juices in general. They're saying that they're going to be enforcing the evaluation of these products, these safety products, as if effectively they're a cigarette before they will be cleared to be distributed across state lines. All right. I have a better understanding now. It sounds like the FDA is arguing is that these flavors of vapes are for all intents and purposes, might be as lethal as a cigarette. So we should apply the same rules as cigarettes to them? I don't think they're establishing equivalency of lethality. Okay. There is... But there is an unknown element. There is an unknown element, and it is clear that in many cases, there are health concerns, health risks associated with vaping. Uh, We talked about, you know, some at the very beginning of this program... And that, therefore, that should be evaluated. That said, the party line is that cigarettes are much worse than cigarettes based on the current understanding of... Cigarettes are much worse than vapes? Than vapes. But that doesn't mean that vaping is safe. Indeed, a lot of the flavor agents that are used in vape juice are considered generally generally regarded as safe for food consumption. But that doesn't mean that you can put it in a pipe and burn it and inhale the fumes and still have a safe product. So because vaping is relatively new on the scene as compared to smoking, which has many decades of uh, study, the FDA is saying, hold on, let's get a, you know some assessment of the safety of these products, particularly the flavored products where there is generally poor quality control and a huge number of unknowns. So you work for a, a contract research organization. Correct. And... What this conversation is reminding me of is how during the sort of the the push towards regulating cigarettes more and sort of admitting the fact that they did cause cancer was I remember that there was a couple of times where the FDA was testing, and now I'm going to blank on the name, uh, but basically like uh, light cigarettes with less nicotine in them. And... The way they test them was by essentially like putting the cigarette in a, in a machine and the machine would draw in smoke and then they would test what resulted afterwards. And later on, it was found out that this was not actually how a person smoked because a lot of the way that the uh, smoke was supposed to escape, the way the, the cigarette was supposed to work was that there's supposed to be like vents before the lips and oftentimes a smoker would cover those vents with his fingers. So in actuality, these light cigarettes were almost as bad as regular cigarettes. So considering that 
there's all these difficulties in trying to measure these things. How how do you go about testing this in a lab, especially given the do-it-yourself aspect of vaping? It's a good question. So very recently, like this year, there were some standard puff profiles that were established. And the idea is that these puff profiles will be used to generate safety data. With cigarettes, there is something called puff topography, which looks at how different users smoke their cigarettes. And it turns out that there's a huge variety, not surprising. At some point, I can imagine that that might be done with vaping, but you have to start somewhere. And so by having a standard puff profile for vape products, it makes it possible to compare test results across different labs or even in the same lab, two different vape products. Because if you don't have that standardization, it's really difficult to understand are the changes that are being seen a result of the nature of the product or because there's a change in how the, the dosing occurred, how the puffing was done. And it's, it's going to probably change you know, over time as we learn more, but we have to start somewhere. Okay, so you're going to create... It sounds like a standard model has already been created. Yes. And that as you gather more data, you might either update the standard model or create new models to follow different archetypes of smokers. Yes. And it's not, you know, me personally, it's an international organization. Yeah. Uh, so it is mutually agreed upon. And there's going to be a lot of evaluation. It's it's going to happen. It, it is one of the fastest growing, if you will, drug uses that's happening, particularly amongst youth, which is one of the things that has really caught the attention of the FDA, and they have been sending out warning letters or worse to a number of providers because it's there's evidence that they've been marketing directly to children. All right. So I'm just a young millennial, <laughs> but it seems like to me, and I could be wrong, that when I first heard about vaping, it kind of exploded onto the sort of cultural consciousness like five or six years ago at this point, I feel like. It's been around longer than that. But yeah, I'd say it's exploded, yeah, in the last five to ten years. So it feels like to me that when I first heard about it and I heard people sort of touting like the healthiness in comparison to cigarettes, my first thought was, I doubt that. <laughs> Like, it seems to me that whenever you go through the process of creating some sort of smoke and inhaling it, that that smoke is going to do something to your lungs. Like, you know, even breathing campfire smoke is going to be bad for you. So do you think, like, people are actually surprised when they heard, like, this news that vaping might be bad for you? Which people? The people who are smoking it or the regulators? I can't put myself in the minds of other people. At some point, it comes down to who who is trusted. So if a person believes in their friends and believes in, you know, the popular media and all that kind of stuff, and then there's a few dissenters who say, oh, no, it might be bad, are they going to believe the dissenters or are they going to believe the vast populace? I think it depends on the personality of the people involved. I'm not surprised that there are health consequences to vaping. And early tests of vaping, 
did the same kind of tests that were used on cigarettes. And cigarettes were causing all kinds of mutations and cell death and all this kind of stuff. And then when they were comparing similar dosages of, of nicotine content with vaping, the toxicology was much, much less. And so it's like, oh, well, maybe it is safer, but it's, it's different, right? It's, it's, it's different. So popcorn lung is one of the examples where like the lungs are hardening as a result of interactions of the burned uh, vanilla, excuse me, popcorn uh, flavor, butter flavor. Cinnamon is also really toxic. It makes it difficult for the lungs to remove phlegm. There are little hairs, if you will, there's cilia in the lungs that are a conveyor belt that move particulates, you know, out of the, out of the lungs. And there's evidence that the, the cinnamon flavor shuts those down. So that means materials are going to fall deeper into the lung because that conveyor belt is not lifting them out. There are more and more examples that creamy flavors cause problems. Vaping is not safe. And cigarettes are really bad. So they are, they are different. And so going back to your question, do people believe? I think it comes down to where they're getting their information. That makes sense. So one thing I'm really starting to get from from this interview is that the is that the different flavors really cause different effects, which I don't think I quite realized at the beginning of the interview. And I guess that makes sense considering each flavor has its own different chemical component to it. Mm-hmm. So this butter flavor is causing popcorn lung. This cinnamon flavor is, cardening, is causing the sort of shutdown of the cilia in the lungs. How, like, how many, like, do you know roughly, like, how many flavors there are out there? Or is it just, like, constantly oh growing all the time? Constantly growing. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of flavors. I... I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but huge numbers of flavors. And, and that's just what's documented. Who knows what's not documented? Because, again, uh, there's that do-it-yourself aspect. Right. But I want to emphasize that the health risks associated with vaping are not simply because of the flavors. Yes, that is a major consideration. But even unflavored vape juice, even without nicotine, has health consequences. Uh, there was... Um, a recent study, like in the last month or two, where smokers, even first-time vapors, when I say smoking, I mean vaping, uh, upon the first puff, there were changes in the aorta the, the, and the blood flow. And, and so the, the aorta is the major. It's the major. It's the major artery out of the heart that feeds the lower body. Okay. So, if there, are, from a single puff, if there are changes in blood flow, independent of flavor then vaping itself has health risks that should be considered regardless of the flavor. And then risks associated with flavors and the burning thereof add on top of that. So one thing you mentioned that I'd like to touch upon now in sort of our pre-interview talk was your company is looking to get into a way to do testing without testing on animals. That's right. I realize that there are probably some... Uh, see, there's probably some stuff you can't talk about, but can you go in a little bit to like what the method, what some of the methodology would be? Like, how do you test the stuff without having some sort of live organism to see the results of? So that's a good question. First of all, the 
the move away from animals is a mandate from the FDA. They want as much as reasonably possible to move away from animal testing for all kinds of reasons. That said, animal studies are still considered the gold standard because there's so much complexity that is not captured in simplified systems. So in vitro testing versus in vivo testing, in vivo means in the body, so that would be animal studies, for example, or it could be in humans, that's also in vivo. In vitro studies means that something that's not in an entire animal. It might be using cells that were obtained from an animal, or it may be cell lines that can be, you know, uh, renewed again and again from uh, stores and grow. There are a number of methods that have been internationally recognized as useful in answering questions like, does this compound cause cell death? And there are other tests that say, does this compound cause mutations? And then there's another test that says, does this actually change the chromosomes that are involved in heredity? Because you can have mutations that don't get passed on to the children, and then you can have mutations that do get passed on to the children. So there are various tests for all of these phenomena. And again, for tobacco, these have been internationally established. So the three that I mentioned are core to that. So there is an investigation into whether or not the, the compound causes cell death. And then that is used to inform like what dose range is appropriate for exposing the cells, for example, with the compound where maybe there are mutations that are present. And then you assess what the mutations are relative to some other reference compound. And that reference compound could be something that's similar to the test subject or it could be cigarette smoke or any number of things. And then finally, of course, uh, is the chromosomal, dam chromosomal damage aspect because the two together need to be paired. It's not just mutations. It's also mutations with, is it heritable? So again, these are all standardized across not just tobacco and tobacco, uh, deemed tobacco products, but also things like pharmaceuticals or uh, medical devices or environmental chemicals. They're, they're just recognized standards to, to answer the question, is there something to worry about? Now, just because something tests positive in bacteria, for example, doesn't mean that it's going to be a risk to humans. And vice versa, just because it doesn't seem to have much of an effect in bacteria doesn't mean that it isn't a risk to humans. A classic example of that is benzene. If you expose benzene to bacteria, they don't care that much. But in humans, it's a class one carcinogen. It can cause cancer. And the reason why is that it's not the compound itself. It's how the compound gets modified by the body into something that causes the cancer. And so there are ways to supplement the tests with, you know, these metabolic activators to get a, a handle on that. But, you know, full circle, the in vitro testing, these non-animal studies are to at least do these first pass uh, evaluations, because if we see issues there, there's no need to, uh, or at least there's not as much need to dose animals to get, you know, the further information that's necessary, the mode of action, for example. All right. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like essentially you're adding sort of an additional layer of testing. Like my understanding is before, like you would test on animals, sort of determine what was going on. And then if, if, it, if it was, for example, 
vaccine testing or cure testing, then you'd move on to testing on humans or for clinical trials. And now it sounds like you're just sort of adding additional layers like, well, before we even go move on to animals, let's determine like whether we need to get to that stage or not. That's correct. You reduce the number of animals that are necessary, which saves costs. It's more ethical. It's much easier to understand what are some of the driving forces uh, that causes um, toxicity or with simpler systems. So uh, it's easier to understand the results. If I didn't say it already, it's cheaper and it's faster. There are no real downsides to adding this extra layer if something can be caught in this initial phase to save the effort and the cost and the, the moral challenges that might be associated with animal testing. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on to our show, and uh, hopefully you'll be here for our next episode. This episode of Up in Smoke was produced by Jeffrey Ferris. Special thanks to Jeff Ballin for appearing on our podcast.